I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, why don't we go ahead and have a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity today to come together. Thank you so much for the vibrant worship today. I can sense your presence here. We pray, Lord God, of course, that we'd have open ears and open hearts. Help us to focus today on what you have for us, God. Obviously, we only want to hear from you. I pray, God, that you'd speak to each person in your way and that they be able to hear you. I pray, God, you'd help us to set aside those things that may be bothering us or distracting us and just focus on you and your word. And we thank you so much we have the privilege of uh, gathering together today. We pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Well, first and foremost, I just want you to remember that passage from 1 Corinthians 15. Don't turn there. That says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed. So that means if I look out here today and see anybody sleeping, this message is supposed to transform you. You will be changed, okay? So no sleepers today. And remember, a good message has a beginning and an end, a good ending, and they always are going to be closest together as possible, right? Close together as possible. All right. Well, over the years, I have obviously taught a lot of the MSI classes, and I teach uh, the class on Messianic prophecy or the Messianic promise and the Messianic apologetics class and wrestled a lot with Jewish people and Jewish objections and Jewish Christian relations, Jewish Messianic relations, and done a lot of thinking and reading and research on uh, what Jewish people believe and you know what they believe about us and many other things. So uh, I just uh, wanted to talk a little bit today about many things, but um, you know the one thing that's always questioned or been a question in my heart, and I get a lot of questions about over the years, is, you know, why don't Jewish people believe Yeshua really is the Jewish Messiah or the Jewish Mashiach? Why don't they believe that he did it? What he didn't do the Messianic task? Why do they think that he failed? You know, there's, there's no way I could possibly answer that question in 30 or 40 minutes all the way through. You can take some of the MSI classes, but I just wanted to uh, I'm going to have a couple slides with me today. I, now, I used to always use PowerPoint. You know, Ray Howard and I went through this phase where we were always using PowerPoint, and then Howard dropped it, and we both said to ourselves, maybe we're relying on PowerPoint to make the point. And so we got away from it, and now we're back to just using the word. But uh, this day, uh, today, I just have a couple slides I have with some quotes on them uh, as I talk today, and I wanted you to show you a couple of them. I just want to give you a couple of quotes from a couple of Jewish scholars uh, today. Do you have that first one, Randy? Can you pull it up for me? Um, you know, Pincus Lapid was an Orthodox Jewish scholar. He passed away a number of years ago, I think maybe 10 years ago, 8 to 10 years ago. But he did a lot of work in Jewish-Christian relations. He always tried to dialogue with Christian scholars. He did a couple debates, and he wrote a lot on the Jewishness of Yeshua and Paul and other things. So... He really got into the New Testament. I mean, he tried to work on, uh, you know, learning about the New Testament or the Brick Hadashah and learn, learning about, you know, what we believe about Yeshua. Well, he had this quote here about uh, the issue of the Messianic expectation. He says here, The role of the Messianic kings in the Bible was political, and all the Messianic prophecies in the last days were politically colored. The plight of Israel out of which the Messiah was to save God's people was primarily political. The non-political Messiah would have been a self-contradiction during the rule of Rome, the spiritualizing of the salvation for which everyone longed for, instance, in the sense of having immaterial soul, would have been perceived as biblical escapism, indeed as a denial of historical political responsibility for this God-created world. 
So that's one quote. Can you give me the next one, Randy, by Amy Jill Levine? You can get it. There we go. All right. Amy Jill Levine is a uh, Jewish scholar. She's an Orthodox Jewish scholar who teaches at Vanderbilt. She's written a book on uh, the misunderstood Jew. It's about Yeshua. And she's also written a New Testament commentary, Jewish commentary, actually. So she's very interested in getting Jewish people to read the New Testament. She says here, this is her quote, Did Jews reject, reject Yeshua because he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting? The claim that Jewish people rejected Yeshua because he counseled peace and all the Jewish people were looking for some warrior Messiah, whose job it would be to get the Romans out of the country, misses the variety of Messianic ideas that were floating around in the first century. The majority of the Jewish people did not accept Yeshua as the Messiah because most Jewish people thought that the Messiah and the Messianic age came together. The Messianic age meant peace on earth and the end of war, death, disease, poverty, the ingathering, the exiles, a gathering general resurrection of the dead. When all that didn't happen, I suspect quite a number of Jewish people are highly attracted to Yeshua's message of the kingdom of heaven, thought, that's a good message, but we have to keep waiting. Now, what's she talking about here? You know, this Messianic age, it seems to be this theme that Jewish people are looking for, this earthly reign of God, something that happens on this earth. It's not escapism where we go on to heaven. Well, if you're Jewish and you're living during the time of Yeshua, and you've been reading the Tanakh because that's all they had, they had read all these texts. You know, they had seen these texts that talk about a restored Israel or talked about uh, the Jewish people being gathered back to the land. It talked about where Israel would be at the uh, center and where the Gentiles would gather and they go up to Jerusalem to worship, where Israel wouldn't be really, really persecuted by any means. Um, you have passages about idolatry being removed, even a temple being rebuilt, restoration of a Levitical priesthood. You had all these texts, you know, they had read, but the point is that everything about the reign of God is on this earth, all right? It's, it happens here, now. And so you can see why when Jewish people today wrestle with the claims of Yeshua, they're kind of like, you know, I didn't see any of this stuff happening in Yeshua's ministry. Where, where's, when's it coming? You know, I mean, I didn't, nothing, Israel's not restored. For, by any means, Israel's not living in peace, right? We know there's still bloodshed and there's a challenge there today. And we certainly don't see all the Jewish people gather back to the land. Some of them are gathering back, a pro, gradual progression. So some of these things just haven't taken place. And so they wrestle with the claims of Yeshua and our claims about who Yeshua is and his messianic mission. The point is today is that what did Yeshua really do with that? You know, what did he do with the reign of God? Now, I know that Henry Goulet has taught a class on the reign of God. He likes to call it kingship of God. And I'm not going to go into what he's teaching about it. Uh, I'm not going to try to, you know, I, I may go back and forth using the word kingship, reign. Sometimes I may say kingdom. I know that sometimes we don't like the word kingdom, but uh, just bear with me. So turn to Matthew chapter 13, okay? Matthew chapter 13. Now, remember that uh, by the time we come to Matthew 13, you know, just before that, Matthew chapter 12, Yeshua had done these miracles before the Pharisees or some of the religious establishment, and we know that uh, they attributed his miracles to the work of Satan, right? They didn't really receive them, and they weren't really receptive at all, and they, of course, attributed them to the work of Satan, and, and Yeshua took that very seriously. Uh, and how he responded to them. But then we come over to Matthew 13. Remember, there was no chapter divisions originally. But as we come to Matthew 13, 
Let's read uh, verses 1 up to verse 9 here. Verse uh, 1 in Matthew 13. That day Yeshua went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large, crowd, large crowds, crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they were withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell upon the good soil and yielded a crop, some of a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." So here we see Yeshua talking about uh, this rain, this rain of God that's happening, but it really turns into a mystery. You know, it's becoming, this is a different uh, form of the kingdom or the reign of God that they were used to. He starts talking about the only people who can understand it, who has ears to hear that can hear, right? Ears to, eyes to see and ears to hear. And he talks about these soils, and he talks about how the sower goes out to sow, there's these different soils out there. Sometimes the seed lands on good soil, rocky soil. There's these different soils. So just imagine a Jewish person that had read the Tanakh all their lives and read those texts that I showed. The point is that they had read these texts over and over, and then here's Yeshua really turning the tables. He's saying, you know, this, this kingdom, this reign of God you're expecting is really a bit of a mystery now, right? He's really transforming, in a way, their view of the reign of God. And he talks about the parable of the sower here. Now, for us today, you know, this passage has great relevance, Matthew 13, because we are called, of course, to go out and share the Messiah with both uh, the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. We're called to the Jew Jewish person first, then to the Greek or the Gentile, like Romans 1.16 says. But we really don't have a lot of control over the soil, right? Uh, some places we go to, there's really hard soil. Uh, if you're in Jewish ministry or you've been around the Jewish people for a long time or tried to reach out to Jewish people or tried to reach out perhaps to different people, you know, the soil is just really hard. And some of us may say to ourselves, you know, I only want to go to the places where there's really good soil, where it's soft and people are open to the message of Messiah, and I want to avoid the really, really difficult places. Well, Yeshua does not give us that option. He just does not give us that option. Uh, we can't not tell Yeshua where we're going to go and not go. We have to go where he wants us to go, okay? And so the soil is uh, not controlled by us, but we are called to go and share the message. Now, now that I've talked about the reign of God a little bit and Yeshua talking about really how it's a little kind of form of an invisible kingdom, right? It's he, uh, anyone that comes to know Yeshua enters into the reign of God, right? We come to faith in the Messiah, but uh, the point is that um, we have to ask ourselves today, uh, you know, first of all, have we entered into the reign of God? Because if we haven't come to know the Messiah, then no, we have not. We're still outside the reign of God, and Yeshua, of course, wants us to come in into uh, this new way of living, into his reign. But what we are seeing today is we're having a challenge, okay? We're having a challenge on how we as believers can reach out to this culture. Now, we've had some challenges over the last few weeks in our culture. I'm not going to bring those up. There was another one this week in the news, and 
Well, every week there's something, right? <laughs> it never ends. But uh, we've always struggled as believers on how to engage this world, uh, engage the culture. Now, Howard has done a great series on Daniel. I know you guys have been paying attention. I know you can tell me every single thing he said, everything on how to be a Daniel today. And we know that uh, Daniel is a great role model for us in today's world. But uh, there's generally been three approaches to how we live in the midst of a culture that really doesn't hold our values in many places, doesn't hold our beliefs, maybe anti what we believe. There's generally been about three approaches over the centuries. Well, one approach uh, is to separate. That means that we look at the culture, we say it's wicked and vile, and we just separate from it. We just hang out in our congregations, we bless each other, we fellowship, we have our Bible studies. We, uh, you know, we just, just don't really engage it at all. Uh, we're just afraid of it, and it's just bad. And, uh, you know, one day Yeshua is going to come back, and we're just going to wait. We're just going to bless each other and build each other up and just wait. Uh, and that was a thinking, the thinking among many believers at one point of history. They did withdraw. They withdrew from the universities. They withdrew and started their own schools. Uh, many other places they withdrew. And, of course, we paid the price because now we're playing catch-up. We just keep playing catch-up trying to make a dent in those areas today. Uh, another view is that we just become like the culture. We just, we're in the culture and we just kind of, you know, we become a lot like the culture. There's not much difference between us and the culture around us. We, uh, you know, listen to their values. We take our cues from the culture and we live like them. Maybe have a little bit of Messiah in us and try to show the Messiah, but we're really a lot more like the culture than we should be. Well, probably the best view, and I think the correct view is biblical, the biblical view, is to live counterculturally, Right? And that is a word we use, a lot of buzzword, living counterculturally. And you're like, what the heck is that? Well, that's where we live in the culture, but we try to transform it, right? We're different from the culture. We don't, we're not absorbed by the culture. We don't withdraw from the culture, but we try to live in it and transform it. We are salt and light in the culture. So we go into the dark places, like the universities or the places that are just very difficult. The soil's very hard. And we do our best to uh, penetrate those areas with the grace of God. And that's what I believe the Bible uh, teaches us to do, because for us to do now, because we don't really know when the Lord's going to return. I, you know, I see the books. There's probably another book out right now saying it's going to be soon. Um, when that thing happened in the news a few weeks ago about the big, big uh, decision we all know about, I have believers telling me that this is the end. This is it. Must be it. Uh, well, I don't really see any correlation between the two. But the point is that for now, we're here and we have to live our faith out in a culture that really doesn't hold a lot of our values and uh, some of the same beliefs. Now, many years ago, uh, when I, uh, let's see, when I was coming to Beth Messiah, I think this was maybe about three or four years after I'd been coming, uh, Howard uh, came over to our apartment at that time. Lucy and I lived in an apartment over on Shock Road. This is the old days. And he called me, he said, I'm going to come over. I want to, I want to give you something. And uh, he just and he showed up at our apartment one day and his big box. And I was like, what's that? And I was really excited, kind of excited. And Howard walked in with this big box and it's in his hands. And he, uh, Lucy was there and I sat down. He said, sit down, sit down. And he brought out the box and he sat it on a chair. It was already open. Uh, it wasn't, I didn't have to open it. And he, he had all these books. And he went out and bought me like 15 books at the time from uh, 
what was that bookstore? Was it Cornerstone? Remember Cornerstone over there on Schrock and Bentley? And I opened it up, and there was all these books. And he said, I just want to be a blessing to you. And I was like, oh, well, God bless you, because I like books. And Lucy's like, oh, God, more books. But anyway, uh, you know, I had a little library there. It was just a building, but she's, we didn't have enough room, really, for any more books in our apartment. So anyway, I opened the box, and he began to walk me through each book he got me. He said, this is good. This is what this is. And he gave me this book at the time. This is like 1996 or 7 or 8, I don't know, somewhere around there. He gave me this book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Now, when uh, Professor Jen Rosen was here, Jennifer Rosen, uh, for the MSI weekend, she mentioned Dallas Willard. She uses his books where she teaches. But Dallas Willard just passed away last year, and he was a, a professor of philosophy at University of Southern California. He was a Christian scholar, but he wrote all these books on discipleship, and how we really grow as disciples. He was huge on discipleship. He taught a lot about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, and his big theme was on uh, spiritual disciplines, things like that. So Howard gave me this book, A Divine Conspiracy, and I just was fascinated with it. So I, this was one of the first books I read with Dallas Willard. But the reason I bring that up is because he talks about in these books, especially this one, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, he talks about uh, this acronym in this book, and it's called this acronym called VIM. VIM, there goes my yarmulke. Um, need to get a tighter one there. Uh, it's called VIM. You say, what's that? V-I-M, VIM. And you may say, well, that's interesting. He said that basically that we as believers need a VIM. We need to have the VIM, the acronym VIM, VIN, VIM. And what that is, the V is for vision, the I is for intention, and the M is for means. V is for vision, I is for intention, and three or the M is for the means. And what he means is that, uh, first of all, at the vision, he says we need to view ourselves as living, uh, having a vision of the reign of God, that we have entered into the kingship of God. This is a new way of living. We need that vision, of course. Um, if we don't have it, then we have no vision, because that was Yeshua's central message, right? He said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God is here, right? So he said, we need a vision that uh, we're entering into this reign. Then he talked about intention. He talked about, he says their intention, concretely, we intend to live in the reign of God by intending to obey the precise example and teachings of Yeshua. So there he's talking about discipleship, learning how to obey the teachings of Yeshua and learning to really follow Yeshua. He's big on discipleship and obeying Yeshua, because uh, he was trying to get us away from just having kind of like uh, a viewing Yeshua as a Savior who simply takes us to heaven when we die, and that's it. He wanted us to learn how to live in this world as disciples, okay? Then he talks about means. The M was for means, and then that covers really how we go about being a disciple of Yeshua. How do we carry this out? Okay, you say, I've got the vision. Uh, I've entered into the reign of God. I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I have some intention here. I want to really, uh, you know, uh, live this way. I want to live in the reign of God, but how? What are the means that we use? Well, that's where he talked a lot about spiritual disciplines, and that uh, these spiritual disciplines were prayer. He talked about prayer and, of course, study, reading, fellowship, solitude, getting away, breaking away, being with God. Uh, he called one called celebration. That's where we come together corporately and worship. But he talked about how uh, these are the means, these are the things we do, you know, to uh, live this 
kingdom vision out. And so I always found it uh, really very helpful when I'm struggling in my spiritual life uh, to go back to this, this acronym, the uh, VIM. You know, I have to constantly renew my vision. You know, what, what am I doing here in this world? What is my purpose? Well, I am a part of the reign of God now. Yeshua is here, or it came to inaugurate the reign of God. Uh, what is my intention? And then what are my means? How am I carrying this out in my life? Well, the reason I bring this all up is because many of us today may say here, well, okay, I, uh, you know, I know the reign of God's here, and I've accepted the Lord, and Yeshua's come into my life. Uh, you know, I have the right intentions, and I'm practicing some of these spiritual disciplines to carry it out. I mean, I pray, I read the Bible, I uh, share my faith, I go to services, uh, you know, I try to, uh, uh, sometimes I break away and I'm by myself and get away from everything and reflect on my spiritual life. I carry out the same disciplines that really Yeshua did in many ways, right? Because that's what we're trying to do, to be like the Messiah. Uh, but, you know, the reality of it is that, uh, you know, sometimes we have to say to ourselves, you know, after we keep doing this is that, you know, okay, we're doing those things, but how does this reflect in our culture? How does this really come out in the world around us. So when people look at us, they see a kingdom person. They see a person who is living this, vi this uh, vim out, the vision, intention, the means. What does the world look at when they see this? So, you know, in Jewish thought, I know that when we come to Beth Messiah, we're really big on how you live, okay? I, if you know me, I'm into apologetics. I'm big on beliefs. Uh, Andrew Lyles is in here, and he's known me for a number of years, and he's you know, I've had him at Ohio State with me, and he's been through thick and thin, and he knows that we're into engaging truth. We're into engaging uh, worldviews and mindsets of people and things that prevent them from seeing the truth of the gospel. So beliefs, um, you know, are a big part of our faith. Sure, we need to know what we believe because we don't want to be ignorant, and we have to share our faith. But uh, we're bit, in Jewish thought, there's a big uh, focus on orthopraxy, how we live, not just orthodoxy, but how we live. So I would say that, uh, you know, to live as a kingdom person, we're talking about how we live and how people see that in us. So I thought what I would go over is uh, some things that maybe we can ask ourselves if we're carrying out this kingdom vision that people would see in us. So when people see our lives, they say there is a person who is different. There's a person who is living a different way. There's a person who is definitely plugged into something I've never seen before. There's something radically different about that person. So what are some of the things that people will look at when they see us uh, as living in this new way, this vision as a kingdom person? Well, if you're going to have a vision as living in the reign of God and you've entered into this new reign, first and foremost, uh, Yeshua has to be your king, right? Uh, he no longer can just be the Savior who you pray to come into your heart who takes you to heaven when you die. That's uh, kind of like a half gospel, as we say. And over the course of our spiritual life, what God begins to do is he begins to impose his lordship on us. When I started, started reading the four gospels, when I started going to Beth Messiah by myself, I just started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I got really convicted. I was like, whoa, you know, I believe in Yeshua. I know that he has saved me. Uh, he has come into my life. But he's really challenging his disciples here to follow him. I was like, whoa, this is really, really, he's asking for commitment, you know? And really what Yeshua did is he confronted me and really showed me that, Eric, you have to make me the Lord of your life. I've got to be the Lord. 
I can't just be an add-on in your life. And that was hard. I remember reading the Gospels and some of those passages, he said about hating your mother, father, and I was like, well, I got to hate my mom and dad, and what's this mean? I got to go to mom and dad and say, mom, dad, Yeshua says, unless I hate you, I can't follow, you, follow him. So I have to hate you, and I can't follow him unless I hate you. They're like, no, I didn't say that. I figured out, obviously, what Yeshua was saying was that he has to be first, right? You don't literally hate your father and mother. Um, so the point is that, uh, you know, that Yeshua has to be the king of our lives. So if you haven't made Yeshua the king of your life, or you haven't even attempted to, you really can't enter the, really the reign of God, right? Because he's the king. So the first step is making him the king of our life. Now, last time I spoke here, I talked about idolatry a little bit, and that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And I talked about Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Idols, where he talks about those things that prevent us from fully following the Lord, those idols in our lives where we find our identity in our career, we find our identity in what we have, it's by where we live, it's by how much money we have, we find our identity in how we look, we find our identity in what people think of us. All these things are just always around, right? And they're rubbing off on us everywhere. And so we have to continuously renew our identity as a child of the king. We have to make you sure the king of our lives every day. Now, another thing that uh, people will see in us uh, to show the reign of God is here is self-denial. Uh, when Yeshua says in Luke 9, 23 to his disciples, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his execution stake and follow me. You know, that was a very potent comment and they knew exactly what he was talking about because in that culture, for someone to be uh, crucified on an execution stake was the most horrific way to die. And when Yeshua was saying to them, unless you take up your execution stake and follow me, they were like, oh, he's saying, I'm going to have to be shamed. I'm going to have to be rejected. He's saying, unless I want to be rejected, shamed, misunderstood, I'm going to not going to be able to follow him. So in many cases in our lives, God will challenge us on the issue of self-denial. Uh, I don't know. I, I really appreciate uh, Messianic believers because I look, uh, when I see the Messianic community, I see a community uh, that has been rejected. You know, they really are identified with the Messiah because they are misunderstood by their own community, the Jewish community. They have been rejected. They have been shamed. Some of them have lost their families. Not all of them, but some of them have. And I appreciate that. I mean, I know it's hard, but I'm just saying that I see the face of Messiah a lot of times. I look at uh, the Messianic community itself. So for us personally, maybe we need to ask ourselves, what's Yeshua asking us to deny? What is some area of your life that he's saying to you, you know, I want to be the Lord of that area. I want you to deny something. Maybe it's our time. Maybe he wants us to give more time to something that we haven't been committed to. Maybe it's money. Maybe he wants us to give to this need over here that we haven't thought about. Maybe it's uh, sharing our faith with somebody that we haven't shared with before. Maybe it's going somewhere. There's just so many ways uh, he may ask us to deny ourselves. It may just be a simple life. Perhaps uh, he doesn't want us to both, uh, your, as mother and fathers or the parent, to have a big, 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 big career job where we're gone all the time. Uh, maybe we just have to simplify our lives. I don't know. The point is that when we deny ourselves and follow Yeshua, uh, we will be different and people will uh, see that. Now, another thing that will show people that the reign of God is here is when we are agents of truth and love. Now, 
Today we are having a real challenge with that because we're not really sure on how to engage the culture. Should we just be agents of love and no truth, or should we be all truth and no love? Well, uh, Yeshua was certainly the embodiment of truth and love, and one thing Yeshua is not. I I, I had to do this, and I know you guys are going to be like, why are you showing this in a messing congregation? But to illustrate my point, I had to do this. Come on, Randy, we can do it, Okay. Randy, let's just put that one slide up there. Okay. I had to do this. I'm sorry. There's a reason I did this today. Yeshua is not Barney, okay? I am telling you, everywhere I go, Yeshua is portrayed as like he's Barney. I mean, you're, you're like, you're kidding me. I don't see that anywhere. Go out there. Talk to people. Read on the, what people think about who Yeshua is. Yeshua uh, is viewed as kind of like this sweet, gentle, loving Yeshua who uh, never spoke any truth at all. And that is tragic because we misunderstand that Yeshua is the embodiment of both truth and love. Now that I desecrated Beth Messiah, the purple dinosaur, uh, I just wanted to make my point. I had to do it. You can get rid of it now. I don't want them to keep staring at that and pollute their eyes. But no, get rid of that too. Okay. You get my point is that uh, Yeshua is not Barney. And, you know, the Hebrew word for uh, truth, emet, has a, uh, an under, you know, the way we read that, it means firmness, reliability, stability, factuality. It's something that uh, speaks of God's character, that he is truthful, you know. Truth flows from his very nature. Truth isn't created by the community. Truth isn't subjective. Truth is something that flows from the very nature of God. And we need to realize that uh, we are called to be agents of both truth and love. Speak the truth in love. If we only show people love and no truth, if you just want to love somebody forever, you know, they can end up destroying themselves. You can love someone into destruction, you know, if you're not going to say anything about truth. Likewise, if you're all truth and no love, you have an imbalance as well. You need both. Okay, and we really have a challenge with that in today's culture. I've noticed it more and more among Yeshua's people. So let me uh, also mention something. Let's go to Ephesians 4 here. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at a text here. Ephesians 4. You're like saying, I can't get Barney out of my head now. You showed that picture of Barney. What am I going to do with that? Uh, anyway, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 7. When. Uh, Paul says here, he talks about Yeshua here. Now it says here uh, in verse 7, it says, To each one of us grace was given according to measure of Yeshua's gift, of the Messiah's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he has also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he may fill all things. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the servants, the building up of the body of Yeshua. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and to the mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Messiah. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful, deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, all aspects into him who is the head, even the Messiah. So you notice that Paul says here that 
God has given uh, the body um, gifts. He's given people. People are gifts to the body. Uh, you know, some are evangelists, teachers. He gives a list here of what the gifts these are. But, you know, we're here, and the people are here to help the body of Messiah grow up uh, in truth, you know, and the goal is to grow up into uh, a mature person of faith, a father of, Messi- a father of Messiah. The goal here, as Paul says, is to attain the unity of faith and to grow up and not be, notice he says here in verse 14, to not be tossed around by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. And the reason I bring this truth issue up is because, uh, you know, I'm really, I agree 100%, you know, that we've got to live out our faith. People look at how we live, but uh, without the truth issue, a lot is lost. And, you know, I'll tell you why. I was downtown uh, a few weeks ago, and I saw a person from a major world religion, another religion, I'm not going to mention its name, because I know you're going to make an inference, you're going to say, I know what he's talking about. Um, this person said to me, you know, this, this faith has changed my life. I live so differently now. My family's so together, and I'm a good husband, I'm responsible, and, and this religion had, makes sense to me. It's all come together, everything's come together in my life. Well, this wasn't a Yeshua follower. This is a person from a completely different religion, a, a religion that has 1.4 billion followers and is in the news all the time. You know what it is. I don't need to say it. I, I, what is he talking about? But uh, the point is that, uh, you know, we have to have our, our living grounded in truth, okay? It has to go back to the person of truth. If our faith isn't true, if there's no truth behind it, then, uh, you know, that's uh, going to be really hard to communicate to people when they go out and pick a different faith and they just look at maybe some of the end results as stronger families or a better life. And so we cannot divorce the truth issue uh, from how we live, okay? So Paul gives these gifts to the body and now these gifts, these people are supposed to help us all grow up into the truth, okay, into the Messiah. Now, something else that um, I want to bring up is a passage uh, in 1 Peter 4. Can you turn to 1 Peter 4 for me? 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, the challenge today also is, what do we do as believers with uh, the culture and judgment in the culture? Like, how do we deal with that? You know, do we uh, just condemn it and judge it? Do we expect people to live as Messiah followers, even though they will know the Lord, and we get all frustrated when they don't? Well, I see that a lot. I see a lot of believers getting frustrated with the culture around them, but Let's remind ourselves of what Peter says here. Look what he says here in, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I don't have time. Let's start in verse uh, 14 here of uh, chapter 4. Verse 14, he says here, If you are reviled for the name of Messiah, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer of a thief uh, or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Messiah follower, a, uh, he is not to be ashamed. He is to glorify God in his name, in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin. For if, I'm sorry, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Judgment begins with the household of God first? Shocking. I thought it begins out there, right? I thought that uh, we're supposed to just keep judging out there. Well, According to Peter and Paul in another passage in 1 Corinthians 5, you don't have to turn there, similar theme, 
Apparently, God uh, brings judgment to the body of Messiah followers, right? Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's great. Okay, so he's judging us first, but what do we do when we see evil out there, right? We see things that just wreck our conscience. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, you probably know who he is. He uh, tried to stop uh, Hitler and his regime, got, got killed for it. Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to act. Not to act is to act. So in some cases, we will have to speak up, right? We can't let evil go astray, and we will have to say something. God will give us those opportunities, and sometimes we just can't control it where we may have to say something. But no doubt, I'm not saying that we can't say anything. I just want us to remind ourselves that God certainly uh, looks within our own community uh, the body of Messiah followers as far as uh, judgment first, okay? Now, another way we can show the reign of God is here as far as how we live is by forgiveness. Ooh, that's a tough one. Oh, do you have to bring that up? Forgiveness. Well, forgiveness is something that is a way of life as a believer. Uh, when we come to faith in the Messiah, we are forgiven permanently by God. We have to confess our sins regularly. But then as we go along in our lives, we have those people in our lives, we have the situations where forgiveness can become a real challenge, right? In a world around us that uh, is looking at us, forgiveness is generally always conditional. Of course, you know, people can hold grudges, people can be bitter and mad and uh, fracture relationships. And here Yeshua is calling us to a new way of living, this way of forgiveness. One person calls forgiveness, they define it as the following. They say, forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all the consequences are necessarily eliminated. And that's absolutely true because sometimes the consequences will be there for years. Another uh, person says this, another scholar, he says, if we begin to get a glimpse of the vast glory of God, we will realize that many of our conflicts are like two ants arguing about which is taller while standing in front of Mount Everest. We quibble over some of the most infinitesimal difference of opinion while the vastness of the Almighty God soars into the heavens. Okay? That's very powerful. Well, as I said, forgiveness is a way of life for us, but, um, you know, what do we do as believers when we're really challenged in this area? When someone has really wronged us, you know, it might be a believer in the body of Messiah, it might be an unbeliever, uh, you know, what do we do with that? Well, First of all, we don't do what the culture does, where we, uh, for, you know, we, we at least have a solution, right, because of the Messiah. And we can show people we have an alternative. Now, one option, of course, is to uh, hold a grudge forever and uh, be bitter and let our hearts grow harder and harder and desensitize to the ways of God, because that will happen over the years. And eventually, it makes you physically sick. So we can do that if we want. Of course, that's why we're not supposed to do that as Scripture commands us. But what about something where someone's really wronged us and they never repent? You know, maybe they did something to us. Maybe they gossiped about us. Maybe they slandered us. Maybe they physically abused us. These are very delicate situations, and I don't make it sound like I'm trying to make it sound like I have an easy answer. But first and foremost, as a follower of Yeshua in the reign of God, we can release this person over to the Lord, okay? You have the power to at least release that person to the Lord and let God deal with that individual versus you obsessing on it month after month and thinking about how you cannot get over the situation. 
uh, some situations you may not be able to reconcile. Maybe the damage is so far done that you can forgive that person, but maybe you can't have a relationship with them. Maybe the, or maybe if you're trying to reconcile, maybe it just takes time. Maybe the process of reconciliation will take months. Maybe it just takes a period of time for those two people to build up a relationship of trust again. I don't know. But the point is that uh, generally, the best thing to do is to uh, forgive and release that person to the Lord. The reconciliation may come later, right? It may come later. We just don't know. It depends on the situation. But first and foremost, we need to remember that we are ministers of reconciliation, right? We're peacekeepers, shalom makers. So we always want to remember the ultimate goal is restoration. It's living in the reign of God. The goal is always restoration. That's what God desires. Is it attainable? Hopefully, but that's our goal in the end, okay? Another thing that shows the reign of God is here is this issue of peace. Uh, Now, I just talked about reconciliation, but I'm talking about living as a person of peace. We come to faith in Yeshua. The shalom of God comes into our life. We have peace with God, but then something happens in our lives where uh, we get a little anxious. Is anyone here anxious about anything today? Maybe? No, I don't want to admit it, Eric, because anxiety is uh, viewed so negatively in the scripture, right? You don't want to admit it. But many of us uh, encounter anxious things, you know? There's things in our lives that uh, are troubling us. Uh, Maybe some of us are sitting up at night thinking about, uh, will my kids follow the Lord? Will they follow the Lord later on? Will I be a good example to my kids? Will I have enough money in my retirement? Will I uh, have good health? What's going to happen to our country? Who's going to get the nuclear bomb? Who's going to be the next president as if he can fix all the problems? Who's going to, uh, you know, what's going to happen over here? What about terrorism? I mean, it goes on and on. You know, the anxieties that we have can, uh, you know, just escalate, you know, and eventually we realize, you know, the peace I once had is being disrupted by these anxious thoughts. Well, I wouldn't say really, and I take that back, I would say anxious feelings because anxiety is a feeling. It really starts as a feeling within and you can change your thinking about it. Look at uh, Philippians 4 for a minute here. I want to show you something that's really a cure for anxiety. Because anxiety is a, uh, a feeling that we get sometimes. But turn to Philippians 4 and look what Paul says here. Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Some of us may be anxious just about circumstances in our lives. Things we can't control. But uh, Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4. He says here in verse uh, 4, he says here, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is ever of good repute, if there's any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, Paul talks about praying here, of course, through anxiety, but he talks about how we can change our thinking, okay? Change thinking is the key to everything. And that's why he says here in verse 8, if we allow our minds to dwell, to concentrate on those things that are true, that are not erroneous, on our right, that are pure, lovely, good repute, excellence. That is the way we train our minds and then hopefully 
some of that anxiety subsides and those feelings come into our pathway, we can have an answer to that because we've renewed our minds in the Word of God. But people around us are anxious. You guys are going to deal, we're, we're dealing with anxious people in our workplaces. People are concerned. Nothing wrong with being concerned or they're overly worried about things. We have the answer to their problem. We have access to the Lord, right? We can share the message of the Messiah with them and show them they can have shalom with God and learn how to live out a life of peace in their own lives. We have that answer for them. So when we live out the way, uh, live out our lives as a kingdom person in the reign of God, First and foremost, we want to remember that uh, we have to make Yeshua the king of our lives because we can't live in the kingdom if he's not the king. But uh, we need to live our lives uh, in the realm of the king. We need to make him the king of our lives. We need to realize he'll call us to self-denial. Uh, we will be asked to uh, you know, deny ourselves and take up our execution stake daily. Uh, we, will, uh, we are called to be agents of truth and love, called to speak the truth in love. We are called to be agents of peace and forgiveness. And hopefully, you know, until the Lord returns, when people see these things in us, they'll be envious of what we have. And then we can point people to the person of truth and show them that the reign of God is here and they can enter into this new way of living today, okay? And so let's uh, thank the Lord that he's brought the reign of God. It's been inaugurated. It's not done yet, not completely. I believe some of those things on that slide will happen in the future, but for now, we get to enter that new way of living today. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we just give thanks to you that uh, Yeshua is the King. We thank you, Lord God, about his message that the reign of God is at hand. I pray, Lord God, that we would have the vision, the intention, and the means to accomplish that, to live in the reign of God, live in that new way of living. I pray, God, each person here today would uh, make Yeshua the king of their lives. Help us to uh, make him uh, the king on a daily basis. And Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, what he's done for us, and we pray that we live as new creations in him. And we pray each person here would take away what you have for them. And we pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.